All right, we'll get started in just a little bit. If any of you have joined early, get myself totally set up here with my clock. Cloudy day here in Virginia. I suppose it's probably cloudy up there in New Jersey as well. But glad to see that we're able to advance to another stage of coming out of the quarantine and being able to gather together being able to gather indoors with a, a limited amount of people. That's the grace of God. That's an answer to prayer. I trust that the Lord will continue to open things up for his people. We'll get started in just a few more minutes. Hi, Roy. Good morning to you. Uh, let's see, not too much. I mean, we've continued in our in our search for a car and for a house. Nothing totally settled there yet. Uh, well, there might be a car that, that we're able to get. Maybe you could even pray for that. We'll find out more about that later today, maybe tomorrow. But uh, we're still hoping to come to New Jersey soon, in the next week or, or two. And we'll continue our housing search and uh, get ready to, to gather with the people at Calvary, and that will be really exciting. Good morning to many uh, more of you who have just joined. Craig, very good morning to you, and Vera and Ken, good morning. Tony, good morning to you. Emma, good morning. Very glad to see you here. Hey, Vivos, I'm very glad to see you. I haven't, haven't seen you on for a little bit, or at least haven't seen you in the chat, so very good to have you with us. Liz, good morning to you, and Juan and Amy, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today is our, in our study. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about today's lesson, and I pray that it'll be a blessing. And we'll get started in just about another minute or two. Hope you're all doing well in the Lord, even as the world continues to be crazy. You know, I remember in, the, in one of our after-church chats, we were talking a little bit about the crisis we're going through now and have things ever been this bad? There is such a thing as recency bias where it is whatever we've experienced lately seems, if it's good, better than before than ever before. And if it's bad, worse than ever before. But historically speaking, there's always a crisis. If it's not one thing, it's another. It's just hard to remember in the moment. Which is why we have to get out of that perspective that just says, I'm going to follow God once this crisis is over. Or I'm going to stop worrying once this crisis is over. Well, that's never going to happen because there's going to be a new crisis. And this is true on a national scale. And this is true on a personal and familial scale. Which is why we want to submit to God and trust him. Which is what these lessons have been all about, right? In 1 Samuel and through the Old Testament. Fundamentally, it's ultimately, fundamentally and ultimately, it's about trusting God and why we can do that. All right, well, it's 9.30, so let's get started. Good morning, and welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I'm David Kavosha. We've been moving chronologically through the Bible, studying the Bible, and we're currently following the life of David in the books of Samuel, 1 Samuel in particular. Last week, we saw how God raised up a special friend for David in Jonathan to serve as a critical help and encouragement to David as David's life became much more difficult and fraught with danger and temptation. This week, we'll look at how God continues to provide for David as King Saul ramps up 
his efforts to hunt down and destroy David. We're going to find out what it is that God does for David in the midst of his ongoing difficulties. We're going to see how God actually provides David with multiple chances to kill Saul. We'll see what David does in response. And we'll also learn, we'll learn more how it is that we are to handle the trials and even temptations that come up in our lives that are all around us. So let's ask the Lord to bless this time of Bible study because we need His Spirit to instruct us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. and Lord, it's a joy to go into it and study it with Your people. But God, we need You to open our eyes. We need You to reveal it to us. You need it. We need You to also soften our hearts to be able to take it in because sin and worldly wisdom and the flesh, even the devil, Lord, they, they get in the way. They can make it so that when we hear your word taught or preached, it, it doesn't penetrate. It, it doesn't do anything to us because we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, I pray that you would shatter that, that your word would encourage, convict, and instruct powerfully, supernaturally, because it is your living and active word. I pray that you would use me to do it. Help me to speak clearly and helpfully, accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24, but you can glance at 1 Samuel chapter 21 for a moment. Last time together we were in 1 Samuel 20 and we just saw how David and Jonathan said goodbye to one another because David is going to have to really be on the run from Saul now. He can't even stay around the, the royal court. Now, we don't have time to cover chapters 21 to 23, but we see in those chapters a number of episodes where God delivers David in various amazing ways. I'll just mention them briefly, uh, a couple of them. David receives help, for instance, from certain priests in the line of Eli. But unfortunately, when Saul finds out about it, he not only kills the priest who helped David, but he kills all the priests and their families in the town that they lived in. This was a wicked act from Saul. David also flees to Philistia for a time to get away from Saul, but he's recognized there as a commander of Israel, and so he pretends to be insane. And he's able to escape without being apprehended. David also begins to gather for himself a small warrior band, and they hide out in the wilderness and caves of Judah. While hiding out, they see that there's an Israelite city under attack by the Philistines, some Philistine raiders, and they rescue that city. But then that city is about to give David and his companions over to Saul. But God warns David, and he's able to escape. Now the last instance of God's deliverance in these chapters, I'll mention to you more specifically, in 1 Samuel 23, verses 24 to 29, David is nearly captured. It's an extremely close call. Because Saul finds where David is, he closes in on David's position, he's got David surrounded, he's just on the other side of the mountain, it looks like it's all over for David, but then a messenger arrives to Saul and says, Oh, the Philistines, they've attacked. You need to come back and defend against them. And so Saul has to call off his pursuit, and David is saved. So the Bible's not entirely clear how much time has taken place since chapter 20 to chapter 24, but you can see it's just crisis after crisis after crisis for David. People... Saul's servants, various uh, people inside and outside of Israel trying to deliver David over to Saul, but he narrowly escapes. And why? Because God is with him. 
what happens next? Let's look at 1 Samuel 24, where a truly remarkable event takes place, a truly remarkable example of God's deliverance of David. I want to read this whole chapter with you. Look at 1 Samuel 24. We're reading to the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read. Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. It came to the sheepfolds on the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of Yahweh, that I should do this thing to my Lord, Yahweh's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is Yahweh's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that Yahweh had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is Yahweh's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, no one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between you and me, and may Yahweh avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? Yahweh therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that Yahweh delivered me into your hand, yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May Yahweh therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now, swear to me by Yahweh that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, well, let's start our analysis of this passage 
as we do with basic observations of the details of the text. Notice in verse 1, Saul finds out where David is. Again, he finds that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now En Gedi is a spring-fed oasis in the Judean wilderness on the western side of the Dead Sea. This area has many caves, which David could use to hide out in, but it also has that central spring, that central oasis, where he could, David could find water. Now these caves were an advantage for David. It would mean that if Saul came down, he would have to take time and care to find David in, by searching the caves. But Saul does come down, and he comes down, notice, with what verse 2 says, 3,000 chosen men. No doubt these are some of Saul's best warriors. Now how many troops does David have? You just back up a little bit. First Samuel 23, 13, last time we got we receive a number about the number of men with David, it's 600. David has 600 soldiers, and we don't know their quality. could be a ragtag group. But if it comes to battle, 3,000 versus 600, 3,000 chosen men versus David's band, well, David is clearly outmatched. Notice, though, in verse 3, as Saul begins his search of the caves of the area, he goes into a certain cave, to relieve himself. Literally, in Hebrew, Saul goes in to cover his feet. That's a phrase which indicates what kind of relief Saul needed. But while Saul's trying to use the cave as his private bathroom, David and his men are hiding in that same cave. This must have been a large cave, and Saul must not have gone very far into it. So, consider how quickly the tables have turned on Saul. Despite Saul's mighty group, brought specifically to corner and kill David, Saul has inadvertently detached himself from his whole guard and put himself in an extremely vulnerable position. Now David and his men can see this great strategic blunder that Saul has committed, so notice what David's men tell David to do in verse 4. Basically, kill Saul! And you can notice their argument. God promised to give your enemy into your hand and then to let you do whatever seems good to you at the time. And look, here is that promise fulfilled. This is your chance to kill Saul. I mean, come on, remove this headache from your life and our lives. Get rid of this guy. Now, it's fair to ask, did God make this specific promise to David? Actually, if we search through 1 Samuel, we don't see it. It doesn't appear earlier in the text. So are David's men making this up? Could be that God gave a promise that's not recorded in the scripture. But are David's men faithfully reciting that process? Have they altered it in some way? Whether this, these words are based on a real promise of God or not, the argument from David's men is pretty clear. God has made this amazing situation happen. Clearly, he's put your enemy into your hands. So isn't this a sign that you are free to dispatch Saul? Notice the end of verse 4. David is emboldened by the words of his men, and he creeps close to Saul and cuts off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. But, verse 5, what happens to David when he does this? He feels guilt. He feels a pang in his conscience. He's bothered. And so he returns to his men in verse 6 and tells them that under no circumstances will he harm or strike down Saul. And notice the reason that David gives. It basically comes down to the phrase at the end of that verse, since he, Saul, is Yahweh's anointed. Now remember, the Hebrew term for anointed or anointed one is Meshiach. That's the term Messiah. 
He said, Saul is God's Messiah. He's the chosen ruler of Israel. Saul has been anointed with the holy oil the same way the priests and the holy implements of the tabernacle were anointed and set apart by God. And if God treats a person or an object as special, then shouldn't we also? To treat what God has specially anointed with contempt, or worse, to destroy it, well, what would that be? Would that not be sin of the highest order? Would that not be a great offense against God himself? So David will not do it, and he persuades his men not to either. Now notice how David then interacts with Saul in verse 8. David calls after Saul, My lord the king! So he's probably some distance from Saul, shouting to Saul. But David also bows with his face to the ground, prostrating himself before Saul, even at a distance. And of course, what does that mean when you bow before someone? It's a sign of humility and reverence of another. This is what David is doing for Saul. And let's not forget, Saul is out here to murder David. Notice what David then says to Saul in verses 9 to 15. He says a number of things. He tells Saul, first of all, that Saul has no reason to believe the people who are saying that David is out to harm or kill Saul. He says, why? Because look, Yahweh gave you into my hand, Saul, and I didn't kill you. This corner of your robe is proof. David affirms that David is no threat to Saul. I'm just like a dead dog, a single flea. You don't have to worry about a dead dog biting you. It's dead. A little flea? What can a flea do to you? David reproves Saul for seeking David's life without any just cause. And David states his trust in Yahweh to deliver David from Saul and to bring vengeance on Saul for Saul's wicked actions, wicked actions against David. Now notice Saul's reaction to David's words in verses 16 to 21. Saul first asks, rhetorically, Is this indeed your voice, David? Now, Saul must have been far enough away that he couldn't see the face of the one speaking to him at the entrance of the cave, but he recognized the voice. He said, I know that voice. That's David, my one-time servant. And when, David, or when Saul says uh, that he recognizes David's voice, it then says that he weeps, and he weeps loudly. He raises up a vo his voice and weeps. And then Saul expresses wonder to David, that David did not kill Saul when Yahweh had given Saul into David's hand, because that's not what people do to their enemies. You don't just let your enemy get away like that. Saul confirms that David has repaid Saul's evil with good. Saul prays that God would reward David for the kindness shown to Saul. Saul even confesses that he knows David will be king. Saul then asks David to swear that when David is king, he will show kindness to Saul and to Saul's descendants and not blot them out or blot out their name. Verse 22, David so swears, and so the two men part in peace, though David does not return to Saul's court. All right, now that we've made these observations, let's go to step two of inductive Bible study, and let's consider questions of interpretation. Was it by chance that Saul went into David's cave to relieve himself? Of course not. This is the sovereign hand of God directing Saul. And consider how profound this is. Saul's brought this whole troop of highly trained soldiers. But what good is it if God removes those soldiers from you? God separates you from those soldiers. 
God can nullify all Saul's strength and security in an instant. And that's exactly what he does here by leading Saul right into David's cave. But why? Why did Yahweh give Saul into David's hand? The interpretation of David's men is that this is God telling David, you're free to kill Saul. But that actually wasn't what God intended. Why actually did God deliver Saul into David's hand? Was it not a test? It was an opportunity for David to display righteous faith in God by refusing to kill Saul even when David had the perfect opportunity. It was also an opportunity for the Lord to reprove Saul's wickedness through David. So, if we just looked at the circumstances as David's men did, we would have actually come to the opposite conclusion of what God really had in mind. This was an opportunity for David to display faith and for Saul to be reproved of his wickedness. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to learn a very important lesson from this. And it's something I've mentioned in Sunday school classes before, but it's again worth re-emphasizing. Just because circumstances align perfectly for you to pursue particular action does not mean that you should or that God approves of it. It may just be a test as it was for David. The opposite is also true. Just because circumstances seem to be working against your pursuing an action does not necessarily mean that you should give up. Again, this may be a test. It may be a trial as to whether you will endure and persevere through difficulty, even much difficulty. Now you may ask, but, but how will I know? How do I know what God wants me to do, regardless of whether the circumstances make it easy or make it difficult? I mean, isn't it going to be hard to tell? Well, there's only one way. What's that way? The revealed Word of God. The scriptures, the Bible, you have to pay attention to the commands of God and follow the principles given in God's word. That's how you will know what God's will is for you, whether the situation is hard or whether the situation is easy. Every other method of trying to discern what God wants me to do, God's will, is ultimately subjective or unverifiable. Feelings popular opinion, signs, dreams, visions, prophecies, impressions. These things cannot be verified. They cannot be relied on. Today, God's will for his people is expressed solely in his word. It alone is the lamp to our feet and the light to our paths. We cannot use circumstances as a sign of what God wants us to do. Yes, we do want to consider our opportunities. That's just simple wisdom. But if we want to know what God wants us to do, we have to go to the Word. That's why He gave it to us. Consider that if David acted simply by interpreting the signs and circumstances he encountered, he would have killed Saul and sinned against God. We must learn. We must learn from David's situation. Another question. Why did David's conscience bother him? Was it really wrong for him to cut off a corner of Saul's robe? You could argue that it wasn't, but the fact that David's conscience bothered him actually shows just how exemplary David's righteous, righteousness and faith is. Because David felt like he had crossed a line that he shouldn't have crossed. All right, I didn't harm Saul, but I, I got really close to doing it. I mean, I cut off part of his clothes. What if I had slipped and I had actually cut him? 
or I mean his clothes, that's really close to his person. It's almost like I violated the man himself. And so his conscience bothered him. Now again, that may not actually have been wrong, but it is exemplary that his conscience felt that it was wrong because he wanted to stay far away from sin, far away from violating God's command to honor his anointed ruler. And again, we can learn something from that, can't we? Our consciences should be bothered too when we get close to sin. Here's another question. How was David able to respond to Saul's evil with good? I can just imagine, the text doesn't say anything about this, but I can just imagine when David says, no, we cannot touch God's anointed, his men could have responded by saying, but look, he's a rotten guy. Why are you going to be good to him when he hasn't been good to you? Well, what's the answer? Ultimately, it comes down to faith. Faith in God. David overcame evil, Saul's evil, with good by faith. And isn't this exactly what David says? David says, I will not harm Saul because he is Yahweh's anointed. In other words, I fear God more than I fear Saul. After all, can a man sin against God and get away with it? And if God is for you, if God has poured out his compassionate love on you and promised to protect you, guide you, deliver you, provide for you, what need do you have to fear man? David understood these things. And David also understood, clearly displays his trust that Yahweh will deliver and avenge his people. And this was not just true for David. This is true for all believers, even today. The New Testament says as much. Consider 2 Timothy 4.18. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you know the context of that statement, Paul is about to die. He's about to be martyred. But he said, That too will be the Lord's deliverance. He's delivered me all the way up until now. And even when I die, that will be God's deliverance for me. I can trust God. And Romans, Paul also writes in Romans 12, Romans 12, 29. We'll come back to this verse later. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. David understood these things. Therefore, David was glad to honor God, obey God, and do good to Saul. He knew he could trust God. I don't have to worry about myself in doing what's right, David could have said. I know that God is able to take care of me. As for the evil anyone does against me, I know that God sees it, and he will bring about justice one day. For me, though, now I can trust God and obey his commands. Brothers and sisters, can we say the same by faith? We have the same covenant-keeping God if we're in Jesus Christ, but can we embrace that same perspective? I don't have to seek vengeance. I can trust God. I don't have to fear man because I fear God. Here's another question. Why does Saul weep? He weeps loudly. Why? Part of the answer, assuredly, is that Saul is overwhelmed by the realization that he's just escaped certain death by the mercy of David. 
I think any of us would be emotional at the discovery of surviving some kind of mortal danger. But remember, Saul is someone who has been ruled by his fear of David, fear of men, fear of losing the kingdom. And God brought upon Saul what Saul feared most. Saul was delivered into David's hand to die. Yet Saul survived. Saul didn't die. You can understand Saul would be a little emotional at that discovery. But I think a more important part of the answer of why Saul weeps is because Saul feels guilt and conviction over his sin because he saw the righteousness of David by contrast. And isn't this exactly what Saul says to David? You've dealt well with me, though I've dealt wickedly with you. Saul breaks down when he sees how clearly, how sinful he's been in acting toward David and even toward God. He's ashamed of himself and momentarily seems to hate his sin and desire to turn away from it. Such sorrow is often associated with repentance. It's, it's an element of repentance. And repentance, of course, means turning from sin. But was Saul repentant? Was Saul truly repentant of the wicked actions that he had been committing towards David? To answer that question, we need to ask, what's the clearest mark of repentance? How do you know repentance is true? It's not by confession, confession of sin. That's an element of repentance, but you can confess without truly repenting. It's not even by displaying sorrow or feeling sorrow. You can be sorrowful over sin, but that doesn't mean that you're actually repentant necessarily. It's not even expressing a commitment to change. You can say, I repent, I'm going to change. That itself does not mean that your repentance is true. How do you know repentance is true? What's the clearest mark? It's actually turning from your sin. It's actually changing. James writes in his book of the New Testament that we can say that we have faith, but if we don't live lives that are different because of that faith, our faith is not true. So it is with repentance. We can say that we have true repentance, and repentance is really the flip side of faith, but if we don't actually turn from our sins, if we don't actually change, then there's no evidence that our minds or our hearts have changed. There's no evidence of true repentance at all. You know that there are plenty of people, those who call themselves Christians, who express a form of repentance today. But it is not real repentance and how do you know that? Because there no, there's no lasting change. It's only temporary. But true repentance and true faith, when God actually saves a person, it results in that person in being brought into union with God through Jesus Christ, and a person cannot help but act differently. He turns from his sin. So what about you? Do you display true repentance in your life or just a form of repentance? We can ask, of course, the same about Saul. Is he truly repentant over his wickedness of David or is it just going through the motions? Well, to know, we have to see what happens in Saul's life next. And so let's continue on in 1 Samuel. We're going to just summarize 1 Samuel 25. In 1 Samuel 25, the first verse, we learn that Samuel, the last judge of Israel, has died. And all Israel mourns him. And then in the rest of the chapter, we hear about David's interactions with uh, two people named Nabal and Abigail. I'll let you read that 
read about that on your owns later. We don't have time to cover it right now. At the end of chapter 25, though, you may notice, verse 44, it says that Saul takes his daughter Michael, who is David's wife, and he marries her off to another man. Hmm, that doesn't seem like a right thing to do. That doesn't seem like a mark of repentance. And now let's look at 1 Samuel 26. 1 Samuel 26, and we'll read again the whole chapter together. This is what God's word says. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Job's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him the second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As Yahweh lives, surely Yahweh will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. Yahweh forbid that I should stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. But now, please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from Yahweh had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As Yahweh lives, all of you must surely die, because you did not guard your lord, Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice, and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice. My lord, the king, he also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If Yahweh has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before Yahweh. For they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of Yahweh, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of Yahweh. 
for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because your life was precious, or my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. Yahweh will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of Yahweh. And may he deliver me from all distress. And Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David, you will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Sorry for the shouting, I'm just trying to imitate speaking a long distance. Hopefully that wasn't too loud for you. But reading through this passage probably gave you some major deja vu, right? It sounds pretty familiar, but let's observe a few items. Well, Saul's at it again, unjustly pursuing David to kill him. This time at Ziph in the Negev of Judah. So that's the southern desert area. This is southeast of Hebron. So was Saul repentant? I don't think so. He's back at it again. Again, though, this hunt for David is quickly turned on its head. Notice in verse 5, Saul is apparently very secure. I mean, he is going to sleep, and sleep normally makes you quite vulnerable to somebody. But Saul is sleeping next to his mighty commander Abner and many other soldiers. He's actually in the middle of the camp. He's surrounded by protection. So Saul should be totally safe from anybody who might want to kill him, right? Well, in verse 6, David gets the idea of infiltrating Saul's camp at night, and he takes along his nephew, Abishai. He is David's nephew. It's not entirely clear in our New American Standard translation of this verse. Uh, this is because of the way it's written in the original Hebrew. It sounds like Zeruiah is Joab's brother. But actually, Zeruiah is David's sister. Abishai is Joab's brother. Abishai, then, and Joab are nephews of David. And we hear that Zeruiah is David's sister in 1 Chronicles 2.16. Anyways, David goes down with his nephew. They're able to get in the, into the camp and notice the suggestion that Abishai gives to David in verse 8. Does it sound familiar? Hey, God's clearly delivered Saul into your hand. Now let me kill him for you. But look at David's response, verses 9 to 11. It's similar to what we've heard before, but it's also expanded. David affirms, under no circumstances will he harm Yahweh's anointed because such an action would bring guilt. David also expresses confidence that God will take care of Saul. God will end Saul's life in God's own way and God's timing. But David will not kill Saul. David instead tells Abishai to take Saul's spear and take the water jar at Saul's head and that they're going to leave. Now, how is it, though? How is it that David and Abishai are able to get into the middle of Saul's camp right up to his person with nobody noticing? I mean, he's surrounded by 3,000 soldiers. How do they get in? Verse 12 says, Everyone in the camp was asleep because a sound sleep from Yahweh had fallen on them all. God put the whole camp to sleep so that David could go through. When David gets a secure enough distance away, verses 13 to 16, he exchanges words with Abner, Saul's commander. 
basically says, "Hey, look, <laughs> you didn't guard your command, or you didn't guard your king like you should have. You and everybody around you should be put to death." And then in verse 17 to 20, David speaks to Saul. By the way, this is probably later in the morning, not night, because David needs to be able to show the spear and show the jug. People be able to see it. David speaks to Saul in verses 17 to 20. And notice, David says a lot of the same things as he said before, but there are a couple different items. Notice that this time David condemns those who are inciting Saul against David. He says, if this is God doing it to you, making you come after me, I, because I've sinned, then let me go offer sacrifice. But if it's men, let them be cursed. And he calls out these people instigating Saul against David because of a specific evil that they are committing. They are forcing David, David says, to flee from the place of God's presence and to flee from Israel's blessed inheritance in the land. Isn't that a great crime to force the people of Israel out of the land of Israel in the place of God's presence? In response, look at what Saul says in verse 21. He says, I've sinned. I admit it, I've sinned. I've been foolish. And I've committed a serious, answer, or a serious error. David, my son, there's an interesting term, you can return, you're safe. David affirms again his trust in Yahweh in verses 23 to 24, and even goes so far to claim that because David righteously spared Saul's life and preserved it, that Yahweh will bless and preserve David's life. Saul responds to David, notice in verse 25, by actually blessing David and telling David that David will prevail. That's an interesting thing for your enemy to say. And then the two part in peace. Well, let's consider interpretation of this passage also. Let's ask a few questions. Why does Saul keep coming after David? At this point, it's been a long hunt, a long manhunt for David. Who knows? This is probably taking place over years. It just keeps coming back. Why? Part of the answer has got to be that Saul truly, Saul hasn't truly repented. He feels momentary conviction of sin, to be sure, but then he goes back to his old ways. That's not true repentance. Even here, Saul expresses repentance again, but is it true? Well, just look at the next chapter, just glance first few verses, and what do you see? Saul is again pursuing David. This is amazing. Why does he keep on doing it? It's because his heart hasn't been changed. He's still serving those idols, those things that he worships in his own heart and in his own mind. The kingship. Oh, I've got to preserve the kingship. Oh, I need the approval of men. I need the security of men. I need to get my own way established. These are the things that Saul worships instead of the true God. And that's why he keeps going back to his sins. Remember this truth, my brothers and sisters. You can remove bad fruit from a tree. But if the tree itself is not changed, that bad fruit will return sooner or later. This is why sin must always be dealt with at the heart level, even in our lives. This is true when it comes to salvation. Fundamentally, you must have a changed heart. You must have true repentance and faith. But it's also true as we grow in sanctification. You see a sin in your life, the only way that sin will be put to death is if you put to death the idols that are motivating that sin. Those ungodly treasures in your heart, those things that you love more than God. If you don't do that, there won't be lasting change. So David, Saul keeps coming after David because he hasn't truly repented. But there is something else, and we should note it. 
Another reason why Saul keeps coming after David is because people in Israel keep inciting Saul to pursue David. Did you notice how this actually appeared in both passages, in 1 Samuel 24 and in 1 Samuel 26? <clears throat> David says, there are people telling you that I'm out to get you, but I'm not. Saul, stop listening to them and let those men be condemned. Undoubtedly, there were nobles, commanders, servants of Saul who were egging Saul on in Saul's pursuit of David. And we don't know why, probably for their own selfish reasons, for their own evil purposes. David says that what these men are doing is evil, but Saul, you are foolish and evil for listening to them. The Bible speaks truly when it comments on the influence that companions have on a person. Those that you choose to surround yourself with, they will affect you, either for good or for evil. And Saul's companions are leading him astray. Now here's a bigger question. What is the significance of this repeated type of deliverance? Why did it, why did it happen? And why did the author of 1 Samuel choose to tell us about it? I think there are multiple answers to this question. We do know, fundamentally, repetition is all about emphasis. You see something repeated? The author, or God, or both, is trying to emphasize something. What is being emphasized to us here? Certainly something is being emphasized to us about Saul and David. By having these two events so similar, but taking place pretty close together, it emphasizes the folly and desperate sin of Saul. I mean, even after experiencing that profound reversal at En Gedi, you think Saul would have got the memo, he would have changed. But no, Saul comes after David again, and he experiences the same outcome. All his security is taken away, he's put into the hands of David, and David spares him. Now you'd think, after two times, that Saul really would have gotten it. You'd say, man, I really have been foolish. i got to stop doing this. But no, back in chapter 27, he goes right back to it. How sad, how foolish Saul is. And yet this is what sin does. This is what idols do. It makes you act in a foolish and wicked way. And this has been emphasized for us by just the repetition of the text. We see this in Saul. But, by contrast, we also see emphasized the vibrant faith and consistent righteousness of David. You know, there is that phrase, you fool me once, shame on you. You fool me twice, shame on me. David could have said, all right, I spared Saul before, but he's still coming after me. All right, I gave you a chance, Saul, but that's it. I'm killing you now. But he doesn't do that. David is not one who's just righteous once, or he can be righteous for a little while, and then that's it. He just goes into sin continually after that. No, he's someone who fundamentally and continually pursues the Lord. And so he's willing to continue to be righteous. And not only that, but he, he seems to progress in righteousness. Now, don't misunderstand. David is not perfect. And if you go back and read 1 Samuel 21 to 23, and also 1 Samuel 25, you'll see that David does slip into sin at different times. And even in 1 Samuel 27, right after this amazing deliverance, David kind of strangely says, Oh, I think Saul's going to kill me. I better get out of Israel. And he leaves, which is the opposite of what he said he should do if Israel is the place of God's presence and a place of blessing. So he's not a perfect man, but he is a true man of faith characteristically righteous, and even growing in his sanctification, notice that in this second instance, we don't have any act or action from David in which he feels guilty. 
or he violates his conscience. And in fact, when he answers Abishai as to why he will not kill Saul, his answer is even more resolved and more explained. He said, look, under no circumstances will I kill Saul because I can trust God. This is even more than before. So the author of 1 Samuel and really God this have orchestrated this repetition to highlight the great contrast once again between David and Saul. Saul is a man who's consistently unrighteous, though he has moments of apparent righteousness and conviction. Whereas David is a man who's consistently righteous, but does have times where he sins. That's not characteristic of David, but it does happen. They're opposite each other. Now, brothers and sisters, what we see in Saul and David is really the contrast between those who are slaves of sin and those who are slaves of righteousness. Or in other words, between unbelievers and believers. Now, am I saying that Saul is an unbeliever? None of us can say for sure. We can't see into Saul's heart. He certainly acts like an unbeliever, and that's what believers do when they've been caught in the bondage of sin. They act like unbelievers, and they experience the curse of sin like unbelievers do. Maybe that's what's going on with Saul here. But wherever Saul is spiritually, he is a, a profound warning of what it is like to live as a slave to sin. Someone even who claims to follow God but is actually following idols. They are confounded by God. They are concursed by God, disciplined by God. But in contrast, a man who truly knows God, he's continually pursuing God and he's characterized by righteousness. And that's what we see in David. Give David multiple opportunities to commit a great sin by killing Saul, remove some terrible headache and trial from his life, and he won't do it. Why? Because he knows God. Because he loves God. So again, broaching application a little bit, you should ask, which person are you more like? You read 1 Samuel 24, you read 1 Samuel 26, are you more like Saul? You express sorrow over sin, you express a desire to change, but you never do. Are you more like David? characterized by consistent righteousness. Not perfect, but your direction is to follow the Lord more and more. Is that evident in your life? Remember what Jesus says. Jesus our Lord says in John 14, 15, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just what people do when they, when they love Jesus. They do what he's asked them to do. Now, of course, the author of 1 Samuel is not just showing us truths about Saul and David or even about life before God, but there's also emphasis here about God himself. What does the repetition of these amazing deliverance show us about God? A number of things, but again, just to highlight a little bit, we see, first of all, that God is totally sovereign. He is the powerful ruler of the universe. God overturned the strength and security advantages of Saul twice in an instant. He made it so that Saul would surely die if David chose to kill Saul. So those actions display that God is in control and that it does a person no good to try and oppose God. But God's sovereignty wasn't just working against Saul, it was also working on David's behalf. So we see this repeated deliverance, it emphasizes God's compassionate faithfulness to his people. 
You know, David expresses confidence in these two passages that God would deliver David from the hand of Saul. And that's exactly what we see God doing here. 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, actually all the chapters in between. It's just God delivering David again and again and again and again. So David says, that's why I can trust God. He delivers. Saul pursues David unjustly. God delivers David from Saul, even in very dramatic fashion. This is because God is faithful. God truly loves. He is a God of love. And when he's covenanted with a person to love him, which he does for all of those who are in Christ, that love is unstoppable. It will manifest in the faithful provision and deliverance of God for his people, and even the vengeance of God on behalf of his people. God had these events orchestrated and written down for us so that we would not be like Saul and self-destructively, foolishly, in futility, oppose God, but that we would be like David, that we would learn to trust in the compassionate faithfulness of God and the provision of God. Really, every account in the Bible is ultimately about God. He is the sovereign and powerful one, but how do we regard him? How do we actually regard him in our hearts? Not just what do we say about him. Yeah, he's sovereign. Yeah, he's loving. I really, I think that's true. But how do we actually live? To you, is God the hindrance to be opposed or ignored? Or is God the rock that you can find rest in and the one that you love and trust? He deserves that you regard him in the latter. Is that what you do? You can see that I've been broaching application a lot in our interpretation steps. That's because interpretation should lead to application. But as we close our study today, I want to sum up some of the main applications that we see from these two texts. I've been mentioning these already, but I want to bring them to your attention again now. Remember, the Spirit of God wrote these things down, and He brought us into this time to study it. That's so that we can be transformed. How are we to be transformed by the Spirit as we behold the Word of God? Here are four ways. Number one, realize the futility of fighting against God. This is what Saul was doing. This is what Saul does all his life. He's clinging to his treasures. He says, i got to hang on to the kingdom. I'm going to go against what God says if I have to. And what's the result? God just shows Saul again and again, it does you no good, Saul. I'm still in control. David's still going to be the king. Why are you doing this? And so it is with us. If you have some sin you cherish in your life, some idol, if you say, no, I still want to live my way, I don't want to do what God wants me to do, do you see how foolish that is? You're being just like Saul. You're not going to win in the end. What, does, what happens to Saul in the end? He loses the kingdom. He loses the blessing of God the whole time. And perhaps, if he didn't truly know the Lord, he lost eternal salvation. Not that he had it and lost it, but he never had it. He never gained it. He gave up God to obtain the things in the world, and he lost those things in the world anyways. So it is with any of us who stubbornly oppose God to cling to some earthly idol. This is why the scriptures call us again and again, don't be stubborn, don't be proud, don't be foolish. What does James say? James chapter 4, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Number one, brothers and sisters, we must realize the futility of fighting against God. If you have a sin or if you have some some idol in your life that you're clinging to, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an earthly treasure, maybe it's some, um, maybe it's the opinion of men, give it up. Turn from it. It won't save you in the end, but it may condemn you because you love it more than God. Turn from your futile way and turn to God. And this flows right into the second point of application from our text. We do need to realize the futility of fighting against God, but at the same time, we need to trust God to deliver and to avenge, but in his way and in his timing. This is what David is emphasizing in the text himself directly, right? He keeps saying, I know I can trust God. I know God will take care of this situation. And that's exactly what God does for David in these two chapters and in the chapters in between. It's still true for God's people today. God will deliver and God will avenge his people. Of course, this is true in the gospel. There is only one deliverer from sin and from God's wrath. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, come into the world to save sinners, lived a perfectly righteous life, died a substitutionary death, bearing the wrath of God on behalf of his people so that we could be saved and made acceptable to God by a foreign righteousness. Trust God to deliver you from sin. Trust God to give you eternal life. Don't trust in some ritual. Don't trust in your good works. Don't trust in a form of repentance that's not true. Trust in Jesus Christ. And that comes by repentance and faith. Turn from your old way. Turn from your sin. Turn from what you want and say, God, I want what what you want instead. Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, you are God. You are the only Savior. Save me. And Lord, I want to follow you for the rest of my life. If you turn to the Lord, repentance and faith, he will deliver you from eternal judgment. But also, in this life, He will deliver you through every trial that you encounter. And you will encounter trials. Jesus said this himself to his disciples. He said, in the world, you will have trials and tribulations. But be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. I'm more powerful than the world. And I will help you. I will sustain you. I will provide for you. That's what God does for David here. And that's what God will do for us. Now remember, it must be the Lord's way. It must be the Lord's timing. What we're going to encounter, the temptation we always encounter, is that when we face trials, we want God to deliver in our way, in our timing. Oh God, this situation is really hard. You know, this is really painful. I trust that you will deliver, but please let it be this way and at this time. Usually, right away, and in a way that's comfortable for us. But God's ways are better than ours. Sometimes mysterious, but better. Good. They are ultimately designed, we're assured by the scriptures, for God's ultimate glory and our ultimate good. So even as we ask God to deliver us in a particular way, which we're totally allowed to do. Remember, Paul asked for the thorn in the flesh to be taken away. That was not wrong for him to ask. But it has to be, but your will be done, God, not mine. If you say, God, deliver in this way, and if you don't, no, I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to be content anymore. Well, then God's going to work on you. He's going to say, you haven't humbled yourself yet. You haven't learned to trust me yet. I'm your father. I love you. I love you with a love greater than you can ever understand. You've got to trust me. I see that you're not trusting me yet. So it would be bad for me to deliver you from this situation and vindicate your lack of faith. You know, that's what God does so many times. Sometimes he delivers us anyways, and we feel even more convicted. We're like, oh, why did I not trust God? 
And sometimes he says, I'm not letting you out. I'm not letting you out from this difficult situation until you will trust me. Because I know that's what you need more than just a comfortable situation. Let God have his way. Let God have his good way. Trust the Lord. He will deliver and he will even avenge. And we think, oh, avenge. Isn't that kind of like wrong? Now remember, justice is not a bad thing. God is a God of justice. And the desire that we have to see justice done for evils committed against us is not evil. That actually reflects the heart of God. But the thing is, we cannot seek justice or vengeance in a way that violates what God's called us to do. That's why God says, don't seek vengeance. Leave, the re- leave room for the wrath of God. Because if you seek your own vengeance, usually that means you will sin. You will kill people when you have no justification for doing so. He will hurt people. God says, no, let me take care of it. And this goes into our third point, third point of application that we clearly see from this passage, and that is that we as believers are to overcome evil with good. And how does that happen? Only by faith. Romans 12, Romans 12 verses 14 to 21 says the same thing. And I want to read uh, read some of those verses to you. Revelation 12, 14 to 21. It says, Bless those who persecute you, and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, I'm still quoting the scripture here, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's our calling as Christians, brothers and sisters. And do you realize how opposite that is from the people of the world? Isn't this exactly what we're seeing in our society right now? I've suffered evil, therefore I'm justified in doing evil in response. In fact, I'm going to keep on doing evil until you stop your evil. That's not the wisdom of God. That's not the way of God. And you know what that usually produces? It usually doesn't produce anything good. It just produces more evil. Yet that's what we're so tempted to do, even in our familial relationships. You children who maybe get in conflict with your parents, or parents, you get in conflict with your children, or husbands, you get in conflict with your wives and wives with your husbands. What you're so tempted to do is you see the evil of the other person, especially if he claims to be a Christian, and you say, that's evil, and because you're doing evil to me, I'm going to do evil to you. But it produces the same thing that it produces in the world. It doesn't actually result in, usually, change that's positive. It just results in more evil. That's because it is the wisdom of Satan. It is the wisdom of the flesh. It is the wisdom of the world. But the wisdom of God says, do good to those who hurt you. Overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Jesus did? He suffered the greatest injustice and evil, and yet what did he do? He died for sinners. Brothers and sisters, we're called to do the same. And you know what's amazing? That actually responding to evil with good is often the means that God uses to convict a person of his sin and bring about change. We saw something like that was already taking place between David and Saul. When David did what was right, it convicted Saul. And God gives the same comfort, and this is somewhat specific, in the New Testament, 
in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, where he's talking about wives who live with unbelieving husbands. And he says, look, I know your husbands, this is not said explicitly in the scripture, but certainly to be understood. Look, I know your husbands are doing evil. They probably treat you in a way that is not right. But you know what? You respond to them in a godly way. Even submit and honor them. And you know what it will do? You will win them. You will win them to Christ. You will cause them to be obedient to the word without a word. That's powerful because it's the wisdom of God on display. That's what God uses to change people. You want to see your your family change? You want to see people around you change who are doing evil? The means that God has ordained is you're doing good to them. Now, sometimes they still don't change. But you know what? When you do what's right, you experience the blessing of God. You will experience what David said God's people experience, which is the deliverance and vindication of God. God sees and God will bless. And you'll have the joy of the Lord knowing that you are doing what was right. Brothers and sisters, the only way we can do this is by faith. We have to believe God has already shown me love I don't deserve and God will take care of me. Therefore, I can do what's right. I don't have to say, well, if I don't punish them for this, then they're just going to keep on walking all over me. Maybe they will, but God will take care of you. Now, this doesn't mean you can't confront sin. We, again, we see David does this. He calls out Saul, and he calls out the wicked men around Saul. He says, you're not doing right by me. May God avenge me on you. But David says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sin against you. I'll let God take care of it. Brothers and sisters, we've got to have that same perspective. I have to say, I really can trust God. I really can trust God to take care of this and even bring justice in his proper way and proper time. One last application. And again, this follows right from what I just said. Overcoming evil with good by faith is going to apply to God-ordained authorities that God has put in our lives. We ought to revere those authorities for God's sake. Doesn't David do this? David says he's, he's God's anointed. I'm not going to dishonor him or harm him Not because he deserves it. He clearly doesn't. He's wicked. But because the Lord deserves it. This is out of honor to God. I just read to you a passage from Romans 12 about overcoming evil with good. You know what's interesting? Do you know what comes next in Romans 13? Submission to government. Submission to God-ordained authorities. That's going to be one of the most obvious applications that we have to overcome evil with good. Because our government's evil? Frequently, yes. Sometimes they're more evil than at other times. But they're, they're filled with sinners and they're filled with sinful, uh, sinful rules and laws. But God says, honor them for my sake. You can point out their sin. You can call for change. But do not harm them and honor them for my sake. And it's the same with the other God-ordained authorities that God has put in our lives. The bosses that we work for. Wives, your husbands who are the leaders of your families. Children, your parents. And you may look at them and say, but he doesn't deserve it. Look at the way he's treating me. He's not honoring me. He's not treating me the way God has called him to. Or that, that ruler, that person hasn't, hasn't treated me the right way as God has called him to. God says, for my sake, overcome evil with good. I'll take care of you, even as you endure under this authority that is abusing its responsibility before me. I see it. I'll take care of it. But you overcome evil with good. You do that, I will bless you. I'll take care of you. And I'll ultimately deliver you and even bring vengeance for you, because I'm a good God. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that?
Do we believe that we really can do what's right because God will take care of it? This is what the scripture calls us to do today. That's all that we have time for today. Now, we're coming actually to the end of Unit 8. Next week is a special lesson. We're going to be doing something a little different, but related to what we've been looking at recently. More details about that coming up. If you have any other questions or comments based on what you heard today, please post it in the chat here on the YouTube page, and I'd love to interact with you. Or you can send me an email at davkaposha at gmail.com. Well, let me close our time with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. and Lord, we're so comforted by the fact that we can trust you even in the midst of difficulties and persecution, to provide for us, to deliver us, and to even to avenge us, because you are a God of love and justice. We thank you, Lord, that we can rest in you, but help us to walk by faith. We need your help, God. We can't do it on our own, but in you, we can be more than conquerors. And Lord, I pray that your word would have its effect today, and any who are stubbornly resisting you, like Saul, would humble themselves and instead trust in you, seek refuge in you, and be exalted by you at the proper time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all again for being part of this study. Again, please post something in the chat, a comment or a question. I hope you'll come back for our live stream service at 11 o'clock here on the YouTube page. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. Yeah, some of you are expressing thanks and goodbye. Thank you for being part of our time, and you're most welcome. Yeah, Mark, that's a good word that you're mentioning from Romans 13, 7. Render to all that is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, again, this doesn't mean you can't point out sin, you can't call out sin. Also doesn't mean that you slavishly obey everything that they say. If it goes against what God's word says, then you don't obey it. But we do honor the authorities for God's sake. We do submit to them for the Lord's sake. And you know what? That's a powerful witness to the world. Some of you others expressing your thanks. Thank you, and you're most welcome. Any other comments or questions based on today's lesson? Nagrippos, you're welcome, and Mullers, you're welcome. Thank you for being part of today's lesson. just an amazing section of scripture the Lord has put before us today. I pray that you'll continue to think about it, meditate on it, pray about it, talk about it, so that this becomes a reality in our lives. Not so much that we'll simply imitate David, but that we'll appreciate the truths that are put on display in David's life about God and about how God takes care of his people. Certainly David is worth imitating in as much as David follows the Lord. Anything else? Well, if you think of something, please send it to my email, davkaposha at gmail.com. I'm going to sign off for now, but I'll see you in the 11 o'clock live stream service at the YouTube page. Uh, see you in a little bit.